Welcome to the Indestructible Wealth Podcast. This is the place where we help young entrepreneurs and professionals to make, keep, and grow wealth that you can enjoy now and for years to come. I'm your host, Jack Gibson, a serial entrepreneur, founder of multiple seven and eight figure businesses and wealth building strategist. Each week, I'm gonna share my tips, resources, and secrets to help you create a plan and build the life you've dreamed of. All right, welcome back to Indestructible Wealth, you guys. I'm excited to be here. I have a special guest. His name's Matt Cavanaugh. And Matt, uh, so good to have you here. We're gonna talk a lot about uh, how you've built out 60 Doors, the psychology of sales, we'll talk about your Freedom Chasers podcast. But you know, there's more important things in life than business and making money, and that's sports. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we we realized here that we both had a dream at a young age that hasn't come to fruition which is i'm okay with it at this point in my life i'm actually glad of you know like how everything has kind of panned out it's worked out but i always wanted to be a big league major league baseball player that was only thing that i had on my mind that was always in my heart and then i made it to uh the seventh grade and how about you? How did that work out for you? That was your deal, right? Very similar, man. Like, I, and I was determined. So I pushed through to high school, um, did not get a starting spot at the beginning of high school as a pitcher, but finally won the starting job by my sophomore year. And then realized that five foot eight, five foot nine, right-handed, my chances were pretty limited. So the dream kind of died there I, and I started moving in other directions, but uh, it was great while it lasted. Now, okay, so from a pitching standpoint, from your experience, how much does advantage does a lefty have? Because my my 13-year-old is a lefty and he's, you know, he's starting to develop his pitching skills. We got him training with a former, you know, triple A player, almost made the bigs. You know, what what do you think? Is he does it give him a leg up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely an advantage. I mean, like perceived and real, I believe. So the perceived advantage is that obviously with most batters being right-handed the left-handed pitcher has the ability to control when the ball comes into the plate and not with, with movement. And so there's definitely a, a real advantage there. Uh, but then I think the perception is even greater. Like when major league scouts, major league, you know, decision makers being left-handed is a, is a big boost. Now okay. I would say being five foot eight, five foot nine is way worse than being right-handed, but being both is really bad. Um, okay. <laughs> so, so my degree is in math. And so like, when you look at like they studied when they raise and lower the mounds, how the batting averages of the baseball players would change every, every inch that they raise that mound, it drops batting averages quite a bit. So when wow. you look at a five foot eight or five foot nine pitcher compared to a six foot three, I mean, that's a Delta of seven inches. That's a big difference because um, the ball's coming in flat versus at an angle. So it comes off the bat differently. It's, it's swung at differently. Um, so height's probably the bigger factor, but if okay. you have, if you have both, it's uh, it could be a problem. So is that way in battle in the military, they always like, we got to take the high ground, right? Is it mm -hmm. similar is that that high ground just gives you an advantage and, you know, not only in sports and in other areas of life, you, you get to take the high ground, huh? hundred <laughs> percent. Yep. It, the perspective is much better up higher. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So your team, the, the Oakland A's, they're probably leaving soon. Is that, is that, yeah, what's they bought down? some land. They, they have, they're, they're in contract in Vegas, like the Raiders. Um, it seems like they gave it a college effort to, uh, maybe not a major league effort to try and stay, but they, uh, it looks like they're on the way out. I just can't understand how Oakland, you know, a huge market can't keep their teams. Like what is going on? I don't, I don't get it. Or is it a smaller market than what I'm thinking? I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, it's a decent market and, and like they were working on this, you know, big development deal that had they got it done would have been a, 
not only a new park, but it would have been like a really cool area. And I think they just ran into logistical challenges. I don't know a lot of the extent of those challenges, but I think they just, you know, and Las Vegas is such a growing market. Like if you look at a lot of the reports, like, like the, the amount of migration to Las Vegas is humongous, all yeah. the stuff they're doing there. So I think when they're looking at, you know, California, particularly Bay areas, it's a shrinking market. People are leaving. And then you can go to a place like Vegas that has more of the amenities. I think it's getting, it's getting to be an easier decision for them. Yeah. So people are actually leaving California that yeah. see, we were talking like, I need a space heater right now to, mm-hmm. to stay warm. And, you know, I'm in Michigan, you're in California, it's warm. Why are people leaving? What's happening? Well, I mean, big cities, you know, they're leaving more in big cities. Affordability is a big problem. I mean, the, the, they're not keeping these cities clean and safe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's getting worse and worse. So I think people are like, Hey, why am I paying these overpriced prices living in a very unsafe scenario when the world's becoming more global and they have more options. And that's why you see these mass migrations to Austin and Houston and Florida. Interesting fact the the moving trucks cost more going away from California than they do coming back. So if you want to come to California, the, the moving trucks are much, much cheaper. Okay. <laughs> They're trying to get you in. Right. And then- yeah hopefully they can keep you, but that's not working out. No. So you were a math teacher. Like mm-hmm. what, uh, how long ago was that? And how long did you do it for? Two years, 2009, 2010. And, uh, you know, salary was starting salary was about 40 grand. Um, that's tough in California. Brutal. 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 <laughs> and and then they cut our pay eight and a half percent my second year. So it went down to whatever that is like 36,000. And then oh, we had to pay $800 a month for health insurance because it didn't cover everything. So we were netting about $25,000 a year in California, and we still probably would have tried to continue, but then the administration was a little bit challenging to work with. They didn't give us the freedom to teach how we wanted. And so it was like, what am I doing here? Um, we, I remember the, the moment that my wife and I were sitting down on the couch and we had to decide if we went out for a Little Caesars pizza or ran the air conditioner that month. And it was like, I don't think these are the decisions I want to have to make in life. And that's yeah. kind of what propelled to make the change. So then what did you, what, what happened from there? Like, how did you up and leave that and decide, okay, I'm going to do something else. And what did that look like? So I just started talking to people and saying, Hey, like, I, I feel like, you know, I mean, I'm a teacher, I'm a mathematical person. I, I've got to have some value to the world. Um, and so sales kept coming up and, and I had no sales experience. And so finally I was like, you know what, I'm going to try it. My wife at that point wasn't super supportive. She's like, no, you're this noble teacher. Salesmen are like slick and slimy and, you know, all this stuff, the stereotypical stuff. And I was like, look, babe, I'd make more working at McDonald's. Like I got to do something for a year or two, like, and build a skill set. And so I went and shadowed the salesperson and he was like, not slick, not smooth, just a good dude. And he was making six figures, just helping people. And that's like completely what shifted my mindset is I don't have to be slimy. I could literally just help people like I do in teaching. Um, I just have to grow a thick skin, you know, in getting rejection and best decision I ever made by, I, I mean, it was, it's the thing that led me to get into real estate. It's like, it's what's led to everything that we've had today. Yeah. I've done a lot of sales in a lot of different industries, you know, we've done it in nutrition and fitness. I've done it in real estate, um, uh, sell Bitcoin mining machines. I mean, I've sold a lot of different things and I feel like there's one thing that you know, really makes the the difference for me and my success. And that is if, if in my heart that I want to help make that person's life better, and that is a genuine like feeling that I have, it's not something that I'm just fake about or manufacturing, but I really care about, I want to make this person's, I want this to work for them. I, I believe that it's in their best interest. 
I feel like I say the right things. I come with the right, you know, attitude and the right posture. And I think that's the biggest key to sales. I don't know what your thoughts are and how, how to sell. Yeah. And I'll, I'll expand that just a little bit. So I Please. think the yeah. heart, the heart is at the core, like the love for people is at the core. And, and that's, what's going to not only get the business, it's going to sustain the business. And I think along with that, with heart, oftentimes comes conviction and conviction, I think is, is the ultimate thing in sales. Like when, when you know, deep down that this thing is better for them than what they have right now. Like it, it creates that not only do I care about you, but I'm not going to let you walk out the door until you have it. Because if you don't, then your life's going to be worse. And so it's like, if you're not selling a product that makes the people you're selling to's life better, get into a different industry, get into a different product or a different company, whatever is the problem. But, but if you want to be in sales, go to a company product service that absolutely is the right fit for the type of people you're meeting with. And then once you know, like, I mean, if someone was dying on the side of the road and you had the tool that could save their life, like you're not going to take no for an answer. You're going to be like, look, no, but buddy, you need this. Like you're going to die. And so in, in business, it's obviously not that drastic, but it's like, hey, if you take what we have, you're going to make an extra 50 or $100,000 or your business is going to grow in this way. Taking no is very, very easy because you're taking no on their behalf, on their benefit versus your own. And so I think that's where love and, and conviction come together. And that's that's what drives not only the right things, as you say, but also it drives the resilience that someone needs to sell. So you've talked a lot about uh, the psychology of sales. Is this is there more to it than what you just said? Or is that kind of like that pretty much boils it all down? I mean, do you have anything else to share as far as your experience on how to become really good at sales? There's a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this show. And if you're an entrepreneur, you're in sales. 100. <laughs> you have a business. You're the you're the salesperson, right? So it's uh, it's critical that they get this down, you know, and really learn this skill because you can write your own paycheck. You yeah. you have a blank check if you have sales skills. I feel 100. percent And and so uh, as an entrepreneur, you're selling your team on your vision. You're selling your you know you're selling people to come work for you. There's so many variations of how the sales process plays out, even more than just getting clients and growing yeah, the revenue of the business. And, yeah, and as much point. as I hate to admit it, I do believe that marketing is a greater vehicle for business than than sales is. But I think sales is the foundation. It's it's how you close the marketing leads. It's how you close the team. Those sorts of things. I could talk to you for days on end about sales processes. So like I, I believe like sales comes in layers. So like the first layer I think for somebody is what we discussed. Do they have the heart? for people and do they have the conviction that this thing will work for somebody but then there's a lot of technical skills like tonality how you modulate your tonality to create and foster emotions inside of people so that that they're not put in weird positions emotionally so that a lot of times people won't buy not because the product isn't right but because of the way they feel when they're with the salesperson or the way that things are positioned like we can get as granular as sometimes when you when you take a statement like, you're going to have to do a lot of work, but here's the result. If you take that statement and you flip it, one sells way better than the other. So what I would say is like, when you're talking about sales, there's there's like layers. It's like layer one, when you get a new salesperson, do they have heart for what they do? And are they convicted? Okay, they're convicted. All right, layer two, memorize all of the frameworks and scripts. Then memorize them to a degree, like a professional athlete. Like when you're a professional athlete, you practice ground balls thousands and thousands of times. You want to practice your tonalities thousands of times to the point where there's like, I could dump a glass, a, a bucket of cold water on you at three in the morning, wake you out of a dead sleep and you could deliver those tonalities. That's when you know I've got it. But then there's like 
the fun part for me is actually below that. It's where the psychology starts to kick in. People like in poker, they'll give tells. They'll use specific words that are aligned with their personality often. And that, that, that the words they give you will give you a window into how they make their decisions. So for example, sometimes people will say the word correct very often, like, oh, that's correct. Oftentimes that, that gives a tell about where the personality lies. And so when you're orienting your product, you're positioning your product, you could actually put it into a way that shows that it's a little bit more detail and process oriented than another person who might want something that's faster or easier. And so when I'm selling, like, for example, we're selling houses, some people are so concerned that every detail is done right. I sell them differently than the person that's like, I just need this gone tomorrow. And so every layer of psychology that you study gives you insight into how you position your pitch to get the best results. Okay. You started talking about poker, man. You're speaking my love language. Oh yeah. Do you play? I love playing. What do you, what do you play? Uh, Anything. Uh, So a lot of times we just play with friends and literally it's dealer's choice. So every hand is, is different, but we'll play. I mean, Hold'em, Omaha, all kinds of games. Did you ever watch the movie Rounders with Matt Damon? Oh, I have not seen it. Oh, God, that's the greatest poker movie of all time. You I'm, I'm writing it down right now. Yes, watch it. Watch it tonight. You'll it'll be your new favorite movie. Um, I watched that right, and then I'm like, I gotta play. That created a dream for me. I want to be in the World Series of Poker, right? Yeah. So I played in it about five years ago, and shelled out the ten grand, and just said, you know what? That my real estate, my tenants are paying for this entry. Um, <laughs> Thank you, tenants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're rent, the rent payments. And I just banked up the cash flow and I used that um, because I knew that it would replenish if it didn't work out. It didn't work out. I got knocked out the f- end of the first day, yeah. but um, I actually just played the, my biggest pot of my life. It was last Friday night in a home game. It was $24,000. pot. Yeah. <laughs> it was so awesome. I mean, I won, so it was great. <laughs> yeah. Even better. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was phenomenal, but um, that was yeah one hand. Everybody, not like for the entire night. That was one one Wait, hand. One hand poker. was twenty four grand. Yeah, one. This hand. is high stakes poker. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty big game. We had um, it's crazy. It's in a little town in Indiana, northern Indiana, um, in a in this guy's trailer that he has for a um, you know, it's for his car lot, and um, it's <laughs> it, it's an insane game. There's probably you know, five millionaires that play. And so we put, there's a lot of money. There was a hundred grand on the table last Friday night. That oh, tells you awesome. anything. Yeah. If you don't know him, I got to introduce you to Pasha. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Pasha is a guy I know. He made multiple seven figures playing poker with guys as a networking tool. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got to meet him. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll get an introduction. Um, I'll have him on the show. We'll just talk poker. That'd be, that'd be amazing. Um, I mean, maybe nobody will listen to it, but I'll like talking about it. Heck yeah. It'd be a fun time. (laughs) My we're, we're, we're small ball poker players. Like my favorite story was like, my dad would always play with us when I was in high school, we'd invite all the friends over. He would beat us every time, take all of our money as, as high school kids. And then at two in the morning, he'd go take us to fast food and buy us food with it. Um, that was our, our, our poker memories. Well, you know, it's like I started playing quarters in the dorms when I was 19. Like that was my first, you know, foray into poker. And then, you know, I went to the casino and, um, you know, at, in college while I was going to college. And then, you know, I'd come back at 4 a.m. and go to class at 6 a.m. And then I just started, kept working. I've just kept working my way up over the years and now, you know, playing at the bigger stakes. So, you know, just keep at it and keep keep developing that skill. It's no different, right? 
when you start in sales, right, you're you're starting off at probably lower lower sales volume, lower ticket items. And then as you keep getting better and you keep expanding your mindset of what you're, uh, what's possible, then you start, you know, you start selling bigger deals and it's, it's, it's just the same thing in business and making money. And now investing is the same way, right? You know, used to be investing, you know, 50 bucks, hundred bucks at a time, you know, now it's wiring, you know, hundred grand, 200 grand, right? 400 grand. So it's all about increasing the, the capacity of your, of your mindset. And as you know, the psychology of, of growing money. So let's talk about this. You went from B2B sales, and then you started your own uh, real estate as a real estate agent. So mm -hmm. you're, you're moving what residential properties Yep. in yes. California. Do you have a certain kind of price point that you're hitting? We kind of hit all over. I mean, biggest that we've done is like two, three million. Uh, lowest is probably hundred thousand. Yeah. Uh, in California, I mean, obviously, because we do multiple states, but in California right now, our median price is four or five hundred thousand uh, where we live. So, yeah, so that became a focus from two thousand fifteen till probably about a couple years ago. That was a big focus of ours, just you know, growing that, getting to where we're doing over hundred transactions a year. Uh, and then in two thousand eighteen, I started doing some investing. And watched the like the net worth growth as an agent was a was tiny compared to the net worth growth as an investor. Uh, and so that's what uh, right there, it. right there, you guys. That what well, he just said it right there. Say that again. That was that was that was like that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, like as an agent, so you're doing 100 transactions a year. Our our gross was like a million to a million five a year for for a few years. And so it's like by the time you pay the team and the agents, you know, you're making you know multiple six figures, but. By a lot better than being a, a math teacher by far. Right. Yeah. Like, like this, <laughs> there's levels to this thing, right. As you talk about, so like, yeah. big, like having some freedom, you know, working hard, but, but way better income, but it's still by, by the time you pay uncle Sam and do all those things. And, and, and obviously lifestyle creep yeah. starts happening, right. Yep. We're not living like yep. 25 grand anymore. Yep. Then all of a sudden it's like, maybe you save a hundred, 200, 300 grand a year, but that's like, I didn't realize there was a much bigger game to play. So the second that I shifted to investing and realized, okay, I could go buy properties, you know, do value add where we increase the values by hundreds of thousands of dollars or a million dollars. And like the different opportunities that came across our desk, it was like, oh my gosh, like I could build millions of dollars of net worth a year or over a period of years, as opposed to fighting tooth and nail, building teams, running a business to make multiple six figures. So it just, it became very obvious very quickly that that investing was a far greater vehicle to wealth um, and, you know, obviously being an agent, running a team is a, is a vehicle to income. Yeah. So, okay. So you're, you're taking your earned income that you're hustling and grinding for you're living below your means still. Um, even though you had some lifestyle creep that you talked about, that'd be naturally going to happen. If you're right. 25,000 in California, you're right. You know, you got to raise that up without, and nobody's <laughs> going to criticize you for, um, raising up your, your lifestyle creep. <laughs> yes. Um, so you get this you know, money banked. And then what was your first deal? And then, you know, what happened after that? Cause you're, you said you had what, 60 doors now? Yeah. So, so basically, and I'll give some context too, because I think this could be valuable for people. I mean, you talked on our podcast about the phases of wealth, right? And so yep. we tried to live as frugally as humanly possible during our first phase. So when we left teaching, we, we really splurged. We went from $25,000 a year living on it to 36,000. So, so when I was in B2B sales, I was making 85 to hundred. I thought you were, I swear you were going to say like, we went to a hundred thousand. I thought well, we have now sure what was going to come out. Right. Yeah. No, no, we were like, so dead set. Like let's, let's grow this thing because I felt every bit of how hard I had to work in teaching. 
for what I was getting. So I wanted to get out of that game as fast as possible. So when we went to 36,000 and I was making 85 to 120, we we were literally able to buy the house that we did and pay it off in like three, three years or so. It was just very, very quick. Um, and wow. so from there, we end up selling and, and buying in, in the town we live in now a better house. And that now our you know, now we're spending 120 to 180,000 a year in personal expenses. So much, much different, but that, that was like a huge thing for us is the reason that we were able to invest is because we lived so frugally. And I know sometimes people don't want to do that, but my gosh, like if you could do it for one, two, maybe three years, it changes your life forever. Because Mm -hmm. it's like, as, as you know, like net worth, isn't like a linear graph. It's like exponential. Like the more you have, the more it compounds. So if you play the game right at the beginning, it's mm-hmm. a very different ending. So mm-hmm. 2008, 17, 18, my buddies hitting me up all the time. Like, dude, you're just not doing this right. You're kind of an idiot. You're making a lot of income. You're not building <laughs> net worth. And like, we had that kind of competitive. We need uh, friends to just be totally authentic with us sometimes, right? You're being an idiot, dude. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, they love you, right? So you take it really well. And then finally, I'm like, all right, look, bud, let's go to a conference together. So we flew out to Nebraska of all places, went to a conference together. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to tell my clients and people that I buy properties. Like I'm going to take that step. That's how not oriented I was that direction. So it was a couple months later, I ended up buying a property because I literally told my clients, like I buy properties. And when he got into a tough position, he goes, I need $50,000 on Monday. And this was a Wednesday. And I was like, well, that's not quite how this works. Um, You know, we got (laughs) to, we got to take some time to sell your house. And he's like, look, like what price do I need to sell it to you at for you to give me $50,000 on Monday? And I was like, well, it's worth three fifty. If you sell it to me at two fifty, I'll buy it. And so he's like, yeah, no problem. And I was like, what? <laughs> um, so you thought he probably would counter that? I would think. I would think so, right? Yeah. But, um, I was like, I need to walk through it just to make sure it's not falling apart. So, this dude got. He sounded like he got wrapped up in the mafia or some shit. Like what? What? Yeah, happened? yeah. There, there was a marriage. I mean, maybe you, don't, maybe you don't want to tell it, but. What happened yeah. if you would tell it? <laughs> well, I think what some advice I'd give is be very careful who you marry. Yeah. Be very, very careful who you marry. So because sometimes okay. you can go from a very good position to a very bad position very, very quickly. Yeah, that's um, good. So so basically we bought this property, we rented it out for a couple of years. A couple months later, someone else needed help. We ended up buying their property uh and, and saving them for foreclosure. Well, next thing you know, we had created two properties that created us three hundred and thirty thousand dollars of equity. Yeah, um, we ended up selling those along with our down payments and buying out of state properties that that we bought for 440 that appraised for 795. And so we went from $100,000 in deposits to owning almost $800,000 of real estate free and clear in a matter of two years in three transactions. It was so wild. And it was like, if I look at what it would take me to save 800 grand, that would be like, I mean, literally years, years and five or six, five to $10 million of real estate transactions with the yeah. team. And Even on like, a big income, you to save eight hundred after, oh, yeah. like you said, oh. by the time you pay off all your expenses and your team and your taxes, and you're living in California, so you have the highest state taxes. I mean, that is very difficult to create, you know, to save your way to wealth. Incredibly, <clears throat> and so <throat> it was like I watched that happen, and I'm like, well, well, how do I look at the world the same? Like, I don't think I can look at the world the same anymore. And so I didn't want to immediately like just not do any agent work, and and also like. It kind of opened the discussion. You, you, I think you were mentioning earlier, alluding to like, how do I define financial freedom? And for me, like growing up in the ministry, like my heart was never to make a ton of money. My heart was to help people. Mm-hmm. And so I have some great mentors that I feel like keep me fairly, I, I believe they keep me fairly grounded. And one of them said, hey, look, you need to define a number. Like what number 
do you feel like is a good number now that you don't necessarily stop at that number, but but your focus shifts? And so for me, at that point, I was like, okay, $15,000 a month in passive income. It, I'm no longer going to be focused on business in the same way, right? It, it, it's going to shift my perspective to being a lot more ministry-minded and so on and so forth. And that was really the move to the podcast was, I feel like I can really help people with the podcast. So I, I would say that's the big thing that shifted. Once I realized well, wealth can be created so easily when done this way, it just completely opened up possibilities and and what life could yeah. look like after that. Okay. So you started your Freedom Chasers podcast, which yeah, I got to be a guest on. It was awesome yeah. uh, getting interviewed by you last week. What, uh, how long did you start it? Like when, when did you start that podcast? How many episodes? Where, where are you at with it? So we started last May, May 13th was our first recording. We started, we did like a soft failed launch in August and a real launch in October. Um, but we've recorded about 300 episodes in 11 months. Yeah, that's and insane. So I, to give perspective to the audience, I think I'm at like 130 or something. And I've been doing it for, uh, I think it's two years today. So yeah, that's crazy, man. 300 episodes since October. Yeah. You're a baller, dude. I appreciate that. It's, it's, I'd like to say it's, you know, some, some amazing thing other than I just love what I do. Like, I just love like what we're doing right now, like the insights we're getting, the connections we're building uh, is just so powerful. Like you, you hear a lot, like your network is your net worth and you hear things like, okay, what's the most important thing, your, your real estate portfolio, your relationships, those types of things. And I started thinking about it. And I even asked all of my podcast guests for a while, like if you had to give up your half a billion dollar portfolio, your relationships or your skill sets, which which one would you keep? Which one would yeah. you give up and have to rebuild? Dude, oh, that's a good question. With Without fail, relationships, relationships. Like you hear this a hundred yeah. times from people that have a half a billion dollars worth of real estate. And you're like, wait, if you would give up your half a billion dollar real estate portfolio for relationships, why why am I not living my life as if relationships are the most important thing in the world? And so I thought podcasting, in my opinion, for my personality type is the greatest way of building relationships I've ever found. Like we're not talking about the weather um, we might be talking about sports for a few minutes, but generally we're, we're yeah. ushering into a meaningful conversation within minutes of knowing each other. Like it bypasses weeks, months, years of process to go straight to the depth. Like, I feel like we could contact each other. You could come out to California next week and I'd happily take you to, to Yosemite. You might not want to go to San Francisco, but if you do, I take you there. Like, like the depth of relationship in one hour is nuts. And so for me, the way I view it is, okay, if I interview 200 people a year, 300 people a year. That's 300 relationship opportunities every single year. Long-term, especially if, if you figure out the right strategy on those relationships, there, there is no greater life enjoyment, fulfillment, wealth creation, anything that can compare to that. So are you able to take those relationships that you're building faster, easier, more streamlined through the podcasting and use utilize those to do deals? Is that happening? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so we're just at the beginning of this. So the first like, six months, like we were just like in way over our heads, right? Like we were doing so much volume of podcasting, trying to build the editing team. So we were just focused on more logistics and we had to make some concessions and like certain editing qualities and different things just to do the volume. Well, now, now that we've been doing it for about a year, we've settled into a lot of the processes. We've got the right virtual team hired to, to run a lot of the, you know, editing and, and, and putting it out there. So now we get to focus. Like we just started a Facebook group for all of our past guests. We mm -hmm. held a mixer last mm -hmm. night and at that mixer, it was so incredible. We, we picked somebody and said, Hey, you're going to be highlighted tonight. And he talked about the $2 million Diddy deal that, that it's going to bring like a million to $2 million of profit on one deal. And 
so he was going to share that. And then he was going to ask for help in another area of his business, kind of a high, low concept. Well, he did this and we had 10 people on this call and there was multiple six figure strategies created off of that, just brainstorming back and forth. And so that's our vision is this group is not only is there going to be people interacting in the group, but we're going to be launching programs together, courses together, buying deals. Uh, there, there's a deal I cannot talk about, but it's more than six figures that if it comes together, we're going to take a, one person from a group, another person from the group that have complementary skill sets and another person that we have a connection with that'll do a development deal. And if it works, it'll be a seven figure plus deal. Um, and so these are the opportunities that start to form. And so we feel like we're amateurs, like complete novices at how to take this thing and, and, and make it valuable. But even being novices, just, just because we have the right people in the room, things are happening. And so we feel like in 10 years, when we get a handle on this thing, you know, we hope to grow one of the one of the most robust, biggest connected groups that that is on planet Earth. And so we feel like we're just at the beginning stages. Yeah, dude, you're making me really want to get back on Facebook because I got hacked and I haven't had it for like eight months. And I'm like, okay, I got to get back on Facebook to get into this group because this you is uh, this is good. This is high level stuff. Let's talk about your 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 portfolio and and what kind of passive income it's kicking off because that's obviously your your podcast is called Freedom Chasers. So I'm assuming that you're chasing financial freedom. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, so it's all about and, that, and that's the foundation, right? So yeah. we have we have a mobile home park that's 38 units, and so that we paid for. Fortunately, paid for in cash. So we bought that. That's a third full. And so when that's full, Where, where's it at? It's in, actually in Oklahoma. Oh, it is. Okay. So you, you had to go out of state to get a lot of these deals. Oh. Done. <laughs> so yeah. here's, okay. So I have, like, I have like yes. a, a, a rainfall uh, theory on investing. So what happens is I believe that you have markets like New York and California that are great for appreciation and, and market volatility and market volatility mm-hmm. for an investor is a beautiful thing. Right. And so when the market's high in California, you sell and you buy in these other States for cash flow. Now, I mean, sometimes investors get so high up that cash flow is no longer important to them. But for me, I'm still in phases where cash flow is very, very helpful. Sure. So, so if, if I could get a deal in California, an area I know really well, and I can make a hundred or 200,000 on that deal, I can take that money and I could 1031 exchange or transition that into the Midwest where I can get one to 3% per month on rents. And so basically what we did is we bought this mobile home park, we're filling it up. When it's full, it'll be about seven to $10,000 a month in cash flow. So right now it's like 2500 to $3,000 a month in cash flow. Um, we've got three properties in Chicago that I mentioned earlier. So those for the contract rents when I bought it were 11,300 a month. You know, there's taxes are high there, so you know, maybe 7 8,000 in net when we bought it. And then we have we have like a property in Ohio and then I literally uh the building I'm sitting in I bought creatively in California. And so this building will generate about 10 to $15,000 a month by the end of the year. So we built out a nice podcast studio, which is across the way. We're going to fill that with guests. So it's actually going to become kind of a combination of real estate and business. Are you going to lease out some of the units to other people? uh, This building, a podcast studio, we're going to lease out the podcast studio. One of the things that makes me uh, maybe somewhat unique is I don't don't gravitate to things that are boring uh, to me. And so like like multifamily, (laughs) like I understand that's the greatest wealth vehicle in in planet earth because you could do scale but it's just too boring for me right it's now. Yeah. And so I'm like, huh, you know, it's like, yeah, okay. I'm going to give up millions and tens of millions of dollars in net worth, but it's like, Hey, I could do this property over here. I've got this business that's doing this. It's just, it appeals to me a bit more. Yeah. So you want to have fun and you want to enjoy the journey. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, you know, storage, um, self-storage, 
it's one of my favorite investments because of it makes a lot of money and it's stable, but it is rather boring. You're you are right. Yeah. Do you have some boring investments in oh, your Oh, dude, the mobile home park is boring as it yeah, that's bo- I was gonna say that's oh. boring. I mean, because like but we the don't cash even own the flow, home. The cash flow that you're expecting, oh. that's not boring. Nope. Nope. And what we do with that cash flow is not boring. And so that's probably the way I should position it. At some point, I'll probably grow up. And when I grow up, I'll probably say, okay, it's time to have grown up investments. Um, <clears throat> right now, I'm, I'm playing child investor, so to speak, ha- having a good time. But yeah, no. So how much is the 60 doors kicking off right now and then total? And then where do you see it going? Yeah, gross is probably sitting around 20, 25. Net's probably 10. 10,000 10, in passive income is no nothing to like, shake your head about i mean that's pretty solid yeah yeah and it and it varies too mm. because again we're in like mm. some of the smaller asset classes like with these houses like you have people coming in and out but yeah eventually we'll we'll, we'll start playing on a much bigger much bigger clip i got into go abundance this last year and a half and there's guys playing at a level that is just so far beyond where i'm at but um i, I think my next step ironically is actually to grow my income to multiple seven figures a year to be able to fuel that engine. So you were saying, I want to get more investable dollars, but I have to yeah. raise up my income, keep my yeah. expenses around the same. And then I have this big, big pile of cash that I can throw into some of these other out-of-state deals. Is that- 100%, yeah. yeah. So so basically like there's there's a couple of vehicles for that. There's a skill set, the sell skill set that I can monetize, but also like doing these six and seven figure deals with people that are in the network that come in through the podcast network. So it's like, okay, if we can land, you know, 10, six figure deals or a couple seven figure deals, you know, a year that creates multiple seven figures of income and that income that gets reinvested. And you know what happens? I mean, if you're buying value add multifamily or, or something of that sort, I mean, you can create half a million to millions of dollars per deal. And so it's literally like, it just becomes that cycle, you know, of growth. And so I think that's, that's kind of where we're at is, we want relationships to be the vehicle, but we want to create opportunities where, you know, we could, we could raise up income by, by a substantial margin and that becomes investable income. Have you had any deals that have gone south on you? I mean, sounds like you've just slayed it, but there's gotta um, be something that hasn't worked out. Well, I mean, and you can look at it one of two ways. One of what I started to realize is that I'm too cautious in a lot of these things. And so I, I have had one, but like the one that went south on me was a was a single family house that had a bathroom on the top level, not on the bottom level. And it started leaking sewage. Uh, and, and so it leaked sewage. So I had to get the tenant out. They didn't want to get out, but I was like, look, it's not safe. So we got the tenant out. We started fixing the problem. But what I didn't realize is because the tenant was out uh, and and we, the heat had gotten shut off, when the pipes burst, it wasn't covered by insurance. And so the whole thing flooded. And so like we ended up losing about $70,000 uh, on not not like overall, but just in lost value, not being covered by the insurance. So that's probably our biggest loss. But I've just realized like I played way too small. Like I've taken the deals that are home runs. Like, oh, this one's got 100,000 equity. This one's got 300,000 in equity. Like they're so safe that it's like, if I would have just played more aggressive, like not a lot more, but maybe 30% more aggressive, net worth is probably multiple seven figures higher at this point. So I would say my biggest loss is actually not the deals I've done. It's the deals I haven't done. Ah, that's an interesting perspective. So you're saying that you wish you maybe had been a little bit more aggressive and assertive? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, but you know, the rule number one, according to Warren Buffett, is don't, don't lose, money. lose money. And you've pretty much stuck to that rule. So I, mm-hmm. I think you've done pretty well, man. Thank you. Um, 
the so tell me about the i want to know a little bit more about the trailer park because i've never done those before i know from what i understand i mean you know you get a lot of cash flow off those they might not appreciate that well um maybe obviously if you get the cash flow and the net income up quite a bit then you're going to force the value of the the whole property up as well um what are you like can you give me numbers on that like how much did you purchase it for and what's yeah. it what's it looking like so we purchased it for 170,000 170,000 how mm -hmm. is that possible you got 36 <laughs> Yeah, thirty-eight. Is that just for the, like the land? You're not buying the act. You're not. You're not buying the trailers themselves. We did. Right? We didn't want them. So, so this is actually how the negotiation. Yeah. So we we don't want to own them because we don't want to fix toilets or do anything like yeah, that. Right. So, so sure. literally, they were asking for more, and we said, "Hey, look, you keep the trailers. We'll buy the park for one seventy. And they were happy because they thought their value was in in the trailers. Um, and so it's like more power to you. Like we'll just take the land. And so basically, we discounted the value of all the trailers to get the purchase price to one seventy. Okay, so then there are they paying you rent to have their trailer park on your property? Correct. Okay, so you're really you don't have any tenants, toilets, and trash issues. Nothing. You're just you're just getting cash flow from dirt. Dirt. That's it. So it that's is that's a simple model. I like that. That's it, pretty that's pretty it, sweet. It's like literally the definition of like passive and boring. That's, right? I was going to say that's almost hundred percent passive. And it? it's very close. And, yeah. and it's because it's rural Oklahoma, like the property manager is such a nice guy. He sends me like, they don't use spreadsheets over there. Apparently like he sends me like a, a handwritten form of all the spaces and the rents every month. Um, and then we have my assistant punches it in the computer. It's very interesting. I went to visit the park and when we went to pump gas, it pumped like five or 10 times slower than the gas pumps in California. It was like nine degrees that day or 13 degrees the day we visited. It's just a very different world. But I mean, it's it's incredible because if you look at it, let's say, you know, a park sells at a cash flow of or a cap rate of 6%, right? Or something like that. Then if we get this thing to $10,000 a month, which would be optimal, the value that's way over a million dollars. Like if it sells at a six cap. Now, maybe you say, well, it's rural Oklahoma. Maybe it'll sell at an eight cap or a 10 cap. But but nonetheless, yeah. it's even at a 10 cap, if it's netting 10K, it's it's doing a million dollars in value. So that's that's our hope is we bought it for 170. We hope to be able to fill it, maximize the rents, get it to being worth, you know, a seven being worth seven figures. But but this is a likely a very long-term hold. Like I don't see parting with this. I was gonna say, are you having are you gonna try to flip it soon or no? Or are you just gonna hold it for the cash flow? And I think so. I mean, when you've got that much passive income coming in with no headache, I mean, that's hard to sell that type of asset. Those are the dream assets. Yeah, I think you know, so. I mean, passive income has its kind of uh, layers, right? I mean, you have in the middle, I think it's called semi-passive is when you own a rental property because there's, like you said, there's tenants, toilets, trash, there's things that break and so on. So you've got with this situation, you kind of got on the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, closer to the hundred percent passive. I, man, I'd have a hard time letting go of that. Cause then you got to go find something else. 100%. Pay taxes right? or, and yeah. it's not that easy to find those types of deals. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I, I'd say like, if I could buy 10 more of these, that, that would be what I would do. I, I know these are very, very hard to come by. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially at these mm -hmm. prices, I mean, people are paying a lot of money for mobile home parks. What is the something that I should have asked you that you're really passionate about talking about? And that's right in your wheelhouse and skill set. But I didn't ask you that question. What is that question? Yeah. So uh, the things that I'm most passionate about, and we got got into the surface level. Like I'm I'm crazy, crazy passionate about human psychology, sales, and and financial freedom. So we covered obviously a lot of those. 
I feel like if we were to do say like another podcast, like I would go a mile deep into one of those topics where we can give mm-hmm. like just insane value just because I think like what I see out there when I, I see people say like, Hey, I'm, I'm great at sales. Like there's 10 layers that they're not even aware of out there. And so that's, that's like, I feel like I'm, I'm on the autistic spectrum to some degree or, or, or somewhere on there because like I can get hyper-focused on like one area and like, that is it. I would say just mm-hmm. going mile deep on that. Okay. So if they want to go a mile deep, they can just go to your podcast because you go a mile deep on, on a lot of these top topics, right? hundred percent. Yep. Okay. So it's called the freedom shape chasers podcast. hundred percent. Yeah. And you've got 300, this guy, he's like I said, he's a baller, 300 episodes. WTF, man, that is insane. You are cranking. All right. I'm, I got to level up here. I'm, I'm getting leveled up on this podcast right now. Um, how do people get a hold of you if they want to follow you where are you at? Facebook is my favorite social media platform. I have an Instagram. Um, and so I'll, I'll send those to you in the, in the chat so you can post them, but basically just Matt Cavanaugh on Facebook, Matt Cavi with two V's and a Y on Instagram. Um, and then, I mean, if you look up freedom chasers on any of the platforms, you'll find us, but, but if you want to reach out to me directly, that would be, be the best ways Facebook messenger. All right, man, we covered a lot of ground. I mean, you're, you're slaying it on all multiple areas, making money, keeping your money and and growing your money with smart real estate investments. You are following the indestructible wealth formula. And it's obviously the freedom chasers formula as well. <laughs> uh, really appreciate all your insights, Matt. Um, incredible knowledge and insights that you've given us. Guys, if you're listening to this show and you got a lot of value, make sure you share it. And, you know, certainly going to make a big difference to pushing out this content to more people. Uh, Make sure to give me a five-star review and rating. If you uh, have gotten value as well, just go to the Apple Podcast app. That's where you can do it. Scroll down a few episodes and you'll see that. And thank you for listening, Matt. It's been a pleasure, man. Uh, Keep slaying it, buddy. Thank you. So great to be on. Such an honor. All right. Here we go, guys. That's it for Indestructible Wealth. Have a great day. See you on the next episode. That's a wrap for this episode on the Indestructible Wealth Podcast. If you'd like to dive deeper into your own wealth building strategy, check us out at myindestructiblewealth.com and follow along on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and yes, even TikTok. Send me your questions and your financial challenges, and I promise I'll respond. Also, I'll think you're really awesome if you'll share and leave me a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast. Until next time, remember our mission here is to help you make, keep, and grow wealth you can enjoy now and for years to come.